We're going to continue on. For those of you who are uh, maybe haven't been here for a while, we're going to continue on in our series in Revelation. And you know, for me, one of the most powerful things that I am uh, enjoying about the book of Revelation is how it, it's, a, it's incredible ability to pull back the curtain of our time today. Like I understand that Revelation was written for uh, the churches uh, in John's time in the first century, and I get that it's projecting to the future, but incredible ability to reveal things to me that I am not normally prone to seeing about the time and place that I live in now. To me, that's uh, an incredible benefit. It's an incredible joy as we've uh, been going through the book of Revelation to be able to see that there's more going on around us than my physical senses can see and understand. Now, granted, apocalyptic literature does it with like really vivid vi imagery and uh, very descriptive uh, symbols that sometimes are hard to understand, but it's so well worth it. So well worth it. And I want to say, um, Darwin's going to put up on the screen Dr. Daryl Johnson's book. If, if you want one book on Revelation in your library, you don't have... Probably most of you don't have many, or if you do, they're from when you were like in the 70s and they just have a big timeline in them. But if you want one book, start here. Start with Dr. Johnson's book this, and his approach. Uh, it's been a significant impact uh, for us, and I think, uh, I think it would be for you as well. Approaching Revelation from the premise of discipleship. So today we come to Revelation chapter 17 and 18. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you. It's not going to come up on the screen today. One, because it's two chapters. It's a lot to, to, to throw up there. And they, they already complain that I have too many slides. So try to be easy on the media guys. But primarily, we want you to engage. So we want you to engage with your, for those of us who are old school, with your paper copies. And we, or for those of you who don't carry that with you, on your devices, we want you to engage personally with the scriptures. A couple things before we read to keep in mind, set the stage, so that as we're reading and we're, we're going to be seeing and hearing a lot of imagery, so what are some things that we need to remember? First, let's remember that the book of Revelation was written to an audience in the first century, and that audience was city churches seven city churches in Asia Minor. We remember them from way back when we started, cities like Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and seven of them. So it was written for an audience of believers who were living in cities. And Jesus is revealing to John and those seven churches in those seven cities the greater reality of what's happening at that time. So just like I was talking about before how he peels back, he's peeling back the curtain for us. He was peeling back the curtain for the believers then. And for them, the visible reality around them was the Roman Empire. I mean, the Roman Empire was it at that time. It had... It, like it was a vast and great empire, and it had its hands, its claws in everywhere, no matter where you lived within that empire. Everybody knew Caesar is Lord. 
Everybody knew that if you disagreed with that, if you didn't abide with that, that that was going to bring you dire consequences, often death, or in the case of John, getting exiled to the prison island of Patmos. So that's the, the general scene, visual context within which Jesus is speaking to the believers. The second thing we need to keep in mind as we read these two chapters is, is Jesus is revealing two sort of big pictures for us. First picture is this. Believers, no matter what empire, no matter what city you are living in, you need to know that it's crumbling, that it's falling, that it will not last forever. Regardless of what name it has, regardless of what particular time in history it exists, be it Rome, be it Beijing, be it Ottawa, be it Washington, D.C., be it Langley, every earthly city, empire, is always going to come to an end. And ultimately, Jesus is going to bring with him and institute the new Jerusalem. The second picture that Jesus is painting for us in these two chapters that we're about to read is that Christians, whether you're in the first century living in Ephesus or whether you're sitting here now living in Langley or Abbotsford, Surrey, you are called to live in the city. You are called to live in these falling cities and be disciples. So what does that look like? What do we need to know? What do we need to be aware of? What did, what did uh, uh, John's readers in Pergamum and Smyrna and in Theatra, what did they need to know? What forces were at play in their cities as they lived between Rome and the New Jerusalem? And what do we need to know? What do we need to understand as we live between Langley and the New Jerusalem? Okay, let's read. Chapter 17 and chapter 18. It is, Brad and I fully acknowledge, it's crazy to try and cover two chapters of Revelation. There's like probably five, six sermons in here, but we're going to, you guys are bright, smart, you're sharp, you're all coffeeed up. We're ready to roll. Chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bowls came over and spoke to me. Come with me, he said to John, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her, and the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. So the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten horns, and blasphemies against God were written all over it. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand, she held a goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. A mysterious name was written on her forehead. It said, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. And I stared at her in complete amazement. John is having the exact same thought you're having right now. 
Why are you so amazed, the angel asked. I'll tell you the mystery of this woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns on which she, she sits. The beast you saw was once alive but isn't, and yet he will come soon out of the bottomless pit and go to eternal destruction. And the people who belong to this world, whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made, will be amazed at the reappearance of this beast who had died. Friends, this calls for a mind with understanding. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. They also represent seven kings. Five kings have already fallen, the sixth now reigns, and the seventh is yet to come, but his reign will be brief. The scarlet beast that was but is no longer is the eighth king. He is like the other seven, and he too is headed for destruction. The ten horns of the beast are ten kings who have not yet risen to power. They will be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast. They will all agree to give him their power and their authority. Together they will go to war against the Lamb. But the Lamb will defeat them because he is Lord of all lords and King of all kings. And his called and chosen ones, his faithful ones, will be with him. Then the angel said to me, the waters where the prostitute is ruling represent masses of people of every nation and language. The scarlet beast and his ten horns all hate the prostitute. They will strip her naked, eat her flesh, and burn her remains with fire. For God has put a plan into their mind, a plan that will carry out his purposes. They will agree to give their authority to the scarlet beast, and so the words of God will be fulfilled. And this woman you saw in your vision represents the great city that rules over the kings of the world. After all this... I saw another angel come down from heaven with great authority, and the earth grew bright with his splendor. He gave a mighty shout. Babylon is fallen. The great city is fallen. She has become a home for demons. She is a hideout for every foul spirit, a hideout for every foul vulture, and every foul and dreadful animal. For all the nations have fallen because of the wine of her passionate immorality. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her because of her desires for extravagant luxury. The merchants of the world have grown rich. Then I heard another voice calling from heaven. Come away from her, my people. Do not take part in her sins or you will be punished with her. For her sins are piled as high as heaven and God remembers her evil deeds. Do to her as she has done to others. Double her penalty for all her evil deeds. She brewed a cup of terror for others, so brew twice as much for her. She glorified herself and lived in luxury, so match it now with torment and sorrow. She boasted in her heart, I am queen of my throne, I am no helpless widow, and I have no reason to mourn. Therefore these plagues, the Lord says, will overtake her in a single day, death and mourning and famine. She will be completely consumed by fire, for the Lord God who judges her is mighty. And the kings of the world who committed adultery with her and enjoyed her great luxury will mourn for her as they see the smoke rising from her charred remains. They will stand at a distance, terrified by her great torment. They will cry out, how terrible, how terrible for you, O Babylon, you great city. In a single moment, God's judgment came on you. The merchants of the world will weep and mourn for her, for there is no one left to buy their goods. She bought great quantities of gold and silver and jewels and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet cloth, things made of fragrant thiathan wood, ivory goods and objects made of expensive wood, and bronze and iron and marble. She also bought cinnamon and spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, wagons, and bodies 
that is human slaves. The fancy things you loved so much are gone, they cry. All your luxuries and splendor are now gone forever, never to be yours again. The merchants who became wealthy by selling her these things will stand at a distance, terrified by her great torment, and they will weep and cry out, how terrible, how terrible for that great city. She was clothed in finest purple and scarlet linens, decked out with gold and precious stones and pearls, and in a single moment, all the wealth of the city is gone. And all the captains of the merchant ships and their passengers and sailors and crews will stand at a distance. They will cry out as they watch the smoke ascend and they will say, where is there another city as great as this? And they will weep and throw dust on their heads to show their grief and they will cry out, how terrible, how terrible for that great city. The ship owners became wealthy by transporting her great wealth on the seas. In a single moment, it's all gone. Rejoice over her fate, O heaven, and people of God and apostles and prophets, for at last God has judged her for your sakes. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a huge millstone, and he threw it into the ocean, and he shouted, Just like this, the great city, Babylon, will be thrown, thrown down with violence and will never be found again. The sound of harps, singers, flutes, and trumpets will never be heard in you again. No craftsmen and no trades will ever be found in you again. The sound of the mill will never be heard in you again. The light of the lamp will never shine in you again. The happy voices of, of brides and grooms will never be heard in you again. For your merchants were the greatest in the world, and you deceived the nations with your sorceries. In your streets flowed the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people, and the blood of people slaughtered all over the world. God's word from Revelation 17 and 18. And I think all God's people say, whoa. <laughs> like, what did we just read? It's incredible that every time we read the next section of Revelation, we pause and think, wow, like, is this stuff really real? Or should I just kind of forget that I just read all this? Like, what do I do with this? Apocalyptic liter literature is supposed to do just that. It's supposed to stop us in our tracks and cause us, elicit within us a visceral response that something else is going on that I'm not always aware of. Incredible imagery in this passage, in these two chapters of this great prostitute that humanity all over the world is in bed with. An incredible picture and prophecy of the fall of human empires. Here in chapter 17 and 18, they're all identified, they're all represented by the term Babylon. And again, I was talking with Al at, at break time. Many people have tried in, uh, to, to, to lay out the, the timelines of Revelation so that we can figure out what's happened and, and what order it's happened. And then, then that way we'll know where we fit in and we can figure out how much further until the end is going to happen. And, and are we going to play in that? Are we going to be a part of that? Or are we going to be gone before that? Or... That's not the way to go about revelation. Anytime you have to 
tweak history, and I'll tell you that every time someone lays out a timeline and says this is how revelation goes over the timeline of human history, there will be tweaking of history to kind of make it fit. And every time you have to do that, you have to come to realize maybe it's not exactly meant for that purpose. But rather, the angel is saying, let me give you, John, symbols. Let me give you, John, the things that you can use to interpret the forces that are at work in your world. And he begins to unveil and reveal. He begins to give this apocalypse. And John is writes down and describes for us the symbols, not necessarily the reality behind those symbols. So this morning, we're not here to figure out which one of those kings is president so-and-so, which one of those kings was this person, what empire is... That's not what we're about. We're trying to understand what is happening in the heavenly realms, what is being... Um, the veil that's being pulled back so that we can see the forces that are at play in our world right now. This was written for John's time. But the things that were revealed then are things that are also applicable to our time. And so we look at the symbols for them. What's the basic picture that we're getting here in, in these two chapters? What's the, the first thing John sees? He sees a woman. Is this the first time John has seen a woman? Put you guys to the test a little bit. Anybody else remember John seeing a woman? Go ahead, Sandy. There is another woman. We talked about the woman in, in chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12, John did see another woman. And that woman was giving birth to, to the one who would be born to rule the nations, Jesus. Now in chapter 17, he sees another woman. This time the angel calls this woman, a different woman, the great prostitute. She's seated like a queen, but she's on a scarlet beast. The same beast that we saw in Revelation 13. The same beast who was sent by the dragon to try and kill the son of the first woman in Revelation 12. The son who was born to rule over the nations. The woman in chapter 17 is adorned with precious metals and stones, but in actuality, she's amazingly hideous. Verse 5 says, A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. And John says, I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. And I stared at her in complete amazement. Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world, we need to understand what this means. It's key to helping us interpret this scene. This woman is representing more Babylons, all Babylons. So this is not just a matter of, John, this is for you. I'm talking about Rome. This is the representation of all of Babylons in all times. Yes, John and the first century disciples were facing a Babylon called Rome and the Roman Empire. But there were Babylons before that. 
In fact, the word Babylon gives us a clue as to one of the earliest ones, Babel. If you remember what Babel was all about, trying to build a tower to get and become like God. We had Nineveh in the Old Testament, Samaria. These would have all been Babylons before John's time. And there will be more Babylons to come after the Roman Empire. As hard as it might have been to believe for those people in the first century, Rome wasn't going to last forever. And so it makes it possible for us today in 2017 to actually wake up and realize we could possibly be in the exact same shoes as the first century readers. We could actually be living in Babylon, just as they were living in Babylon. And if that's the case, how much more do we need to know and understand these chapters? John says that the woman was drunk on the blood of the saints, uh, uh, chapter 17, verse 6 and that she causes all the nations to be drunk with the wine of her immorality and her seductive wealth. Chapter 18, verse 3. John says that she was seated on the beast, and she's seated on many waters, and she's seated on seven hills. This is very apocalyptic literature-like to mix multiple images. How can someone be seated on the same thing if they're seated on something different? But John gives us some distinctives there. So she sits on the beast, and what does the beast represent? The beast is the one who empowers her uh, immorality and empowers her wealth, those things that she uses to seduce the kings. The many waters, uh, the angel tells John, the many waters are representative of all the nations, of the many people groups that she sits over top of. And then sitting on seven hills, that would have been an immediate recognition in the first century because Rome was built on seven hills, literally. And so they would have immediately seen, oh, there's a connection there. But there's a a deeper symbolic connection. We know that the number seven is a number of completeness, of wholeness, of greatness in Revelation. And so she sits on the greatest nations, on the greatest empires, including at that time Rome. So that's the basic picture of the woman, the great prostitute. And then we get into some detailed imagery of the beast who is empowering the woman. And here again, it gets very detailed and complex with how many horns it has and how many heads it has and the waters that it's over and the kings that are connected with that. And, and again, theologians love to, at least some do, get, I think, sidetracked and try to figure out, okay, so which king was that king? And then which king can be this horn? And they try to line it all the way up so they, they can figure out, okay, so, so where does Trump fit in and where does Putin fit in? And, and, and are we close? Like, should we be getting ready? But again, to do that, you always have to tweak history. And I think you begin to lose sight of what, of what Jesus is trying to reveal to us. The angel is saying to John, I'm talking about symbols that represent the powers and the systems that are coming to bear on humanity. That's what I'm talking about. The bigger picture is that people, that nations and their rulers are entering into bed with the evil one, seduced by great power and wealth. Oh, that would never happen in our time, would it? 
And these kings ultimately were told in, uh, in, in the chapters, uh, they ultimately waged war against the Lamb, against the son of the woman in Revelation 12 who was born to rule the nations. Why did they wage war against him? Because he's born to rule the nations. And if I'm a king, I may not want him to rule my nation. And so I might want to get rid of him. And so they go to war against the Lamb. But as we remember from Revelation 4 and 5, who wins? The Lamb. The Lamb always wins. Why? Chapter 17, verse 4, gives an incredibly concise explanation. Just because he is Lord of all lords and King of all kings. In other words, when Jesus shows up to come face to face with all those other kings, the war's done. Like normally when two kings get to, you know, they, they amass their armies and then they slowly bring them and they get to a point where they, you know, in, in those days where they would meet and they could visually see each other, that would signal the war is about to happen. But when Jesus shows up and faces these kings, the war is over. Like it's done. Yes, the seven horns that we read about on the beast and the, and the, and the ten heads, they represent great authority. They represent uh, power, great power. Again, because they're using those numbers that are representative in Revelation of power. And the beast has that great power. But... Jesus, the Lamb, has greater authority. Jesus, the Lamb, has ultimate strength and power. And so John is speaking to his people in the churches in Asia Minor. And he's saying, yes, the powers and the principalities at work right now, yes, Rome is powerful. Let's not deny it. This is like big-time stuff. But don't be afraid. Don't panic. Don't give up. Every empire, even Rome, is crumbling. It may look successful. It may look like its, like it's time is never going to end. It may look like it's just going to run roughshod forever. But the Lamb is coming. Those empires cannot overcome the rule of the Lamb. In fact, in chapter 17, verses 16 and 17, we get this uh, picture. I don't know if, if you caught it or not, but we get this picture of evil actually turning on evil. Those verses start to talk about the beast and the kings that it's aligned with. They hate the great prostitute. They hate the woman. And actually, they begin to tear her up and shred her and consume her. And we get the picture that evil actually self-destructs. Evil consumes itself. That's what evil does. Evil, evil is so intent on the destruction of what is before it that it will ultimately destroy itself. And so we get that picture in uh, 17 verses 16 and 17. And from that we begin to understand that any city or any nation, any empire that is built 
and draws its authority and strength from something other than God ends up being eaten, ends up being consumed by that very authority and power. So if a city or, a, or, an, or an empire, a nation, is built on greed, for example, then at some point, ultimately, that very greed will turn around and consume the city or the nation. If a city or a nation is, is uh, built uh, on weapons and decides that weapons is what will bring it freedom or weapons is what will bring it stability or liberty, that may be for a time, but it will turn. And those very weapons will be what end up consuming that entity, that nation. In other words, the biblical principle, we do reap what we sow. Babylon, the representative city, is always crumbling and falling because it's built on faulty beliefs. Beliefs that in the end will turn around and consume, eat her up. And we have that imagery in chapter 16, uh, 17, verses 16 and 17, as it does that to its very self as the beast consumes the great prostitute. But what a sobering thought that anything we create, we have the, we can tap into whatever power we want as humanity. And we have done that throughout history. And we can build whatever we want. Like we have great, great capacity. And we have these resources. And sometimes we get consumed, or sometimes we get seduced by them. But whenever we create anything without the authority and the power of God, that very thing will turn around and consume us, no matter how good we intended it, no matter how powerful it does become or how wonderful it seems, it will turn around and consume us. And I think it's safe to say that today, right now, we have modern-day examples of that taking place before our very eyes. It was true for every kingdom, every superpower before the Roman Empire. It was very true for the Roman Empire. I mean, you guys remember how vast, how long-standing Roman Empire was? The Goths took down the Roman Empire in one week. Am I right, history teacher? <laughs> one week, if I remember my history right. Like this amazing empire that controlled known humanity was done in a week. And friends, it is and it will be true for every empire and superpower since then. So how do we know if the empire or if the city, let's be more specific, that we are living in has become or is becoming this Babylon. Daryl Johnson, in, his, uh, in the book that I highlighted for you there, he, he uh, coins the phrase Babylonness. And we like to make up words here when we preach, so I thought Daryl did it for us. I'm going to use his word, Babylonness. 
He marked seven characteristics out of these two chapters, 17 and 18, for us. Seven things that, as Jesus' Jesus's disciples, we need to be on the watch for, that we need to be able to identify. And they will take courage to identify. We need to be able to name them for what they are, and that will take tremendous courage to name them. And then we need to be willing to be obedient and live counter to them. Other, holy in our world. Seven things. Let's quickly go through them. The first thing, and I've mentioned it a couple times, the first thing is simply leaving God Almighty, living God out of the equation as we do our lives, as we build, as we grow, as we produce, as we interact. We leave out the presence of God, His grace, his will, his purposes, when, when, these get, when these are pushed out of how we operate, when these are pushed out of our governing systems, when they're left out of our city's core and how we do life together, then an element of Babylonness is taking hold. Sensuality talks about it in chapter 17 and in chapter 18. John speaks of uh, of Babylon corrupting, corrupting the earth with her immorality. Very obvious to us, probably to the point where we're starting to get numb to it, but what's the number one marketing tool? If you want to sell something, what sells? Go ahead, you can say it in church. <laughs> Sex, yes. In fact, our society is taking that marketing to an even greater level and it's not just about trying to, um, trying to impact or play on our sex drives. They're now saying, we're now in a society that is beginning to say, well, actually, your whole identity is wrapped up in your sexuality. Guys, where is your identity? Is your identity based in whether or not you are heterosexual or homosexual or transgender or... Is that your identity? That's what a lot of the discussion is about. Your identity is to be in Christ alone. And all over the world, we're hearing this in our homes, in our schools, our shops, online. Clip an image after image day and night, celebrating sensuality, celebrating sexuality, celebrating tolerance, celebrating that that's your identity, that's who you really are. And with every message that is sent out and is received by somebody, Babylonness is taking hold. Injustice is another one. Revelation chapter 18, verse 13, John speaks of, uh, of Rome selling slaves. Literally, he says in there, selling bodies and souls. How many Babylons, just think of recent history, the last couple hundred years, how many empires were built, have been built on the backs of slaves? How much of what glitters and shines today in our nations is built on unjust economic systems? on structures and laborers who are receiving the short end of the stick. 
In fact, in chapter 18, verse 12 and 13, we see the value system of Babylon. If you take the time to go back and read those verses, it lists all these things. It starts with, uh, with gold and silver and jewels, and then it goes to silks and it, fine linens, and then it gets into uh, spices, and, and then it gets into animals, cattle, and horses, and then bodies, people totally flipped, in, inverted justice system. What do they value? Gold was at the top, people were at the bottom. And when we have an inverted justice system, an inverted value system in our city like that, that's a sign that Babylonness is taking hold. Worship of products. We just listed a whole bunch of products. When a society or a city finds its identity in what it produces and consumes, yes, we just came out of Black Friday. When security is in our gross national product, when thinking that uh, when our decisions are based primarily on what helps us produce the most for the cheapest, how can we do it the fastest? Then Babylonness is present. Violence, of, violence is the fifth one. In other words, constantly preparing for and constantly investing in war. Choosing to solve conflict with weapons. Thinking that weapons will bring us security and freedom. We hear that over and over. If only so-and-so had a bigger gun or a faster gun. Friends, Babylon has a very specific and intentional amendment in its constitution for violence. Because it is built on the premise to destroy. The sixth element is deception and counterfeit. In Revelation chapter 17, 8, when the angel was describing the beast, you might have caught this. It said, John saw a beast that was and isn't, is dead and is about to come. It's a deliberate parody on the Lamb, Jesus, death and resurrection. And Babylonness always operates with deception and as counterfeit. It is never as it says it is. It always has ulterior motives. The seventh one is idolatry. We as humans are incurably religious. In fact, God has created us to be worshipers. It's in our DNA. That's who every human being is created to be to some extent. So if we're not worshiping the true living God, if we're not worshiping the Lamb, then we will worship an idol. We will worship something. Revelation 18 verse 7, when it was talking about the great prostitute, even she, she glorified herself. Even she worshipped something herself. 
and she began to play God with human lives because she thought she was so great. No one is without a point of worship. Do not be fooled. Everybody you encounter every single day is a worshiper. And if they're not worshiping the Lamb as Lord of Lords, then they are worshiping someone or something. Do we recognize any of these seven? Yeah, it's pretty easy to point a finger to that nation. It's pretty easy to point a finger to that ruler over there. But what about here? Are we good at taking the lay of our land? I'm assuming that between all of us, we cover Langley, Surrey, and Abbotsford. Maybe a few other places, but... Are we living in Babylon? Friends, this is why it's hard to be a disciple. This is why it was so hard to be a disciple in the first century. Not because they were living under Rome, but because they were living in Babylon. This is why it's so hard to be a disciple now. Oh, you say, but oh, it's easy. We live in Canada. We have religious freedom. We have, no, open your eyes, Revelation is saying. You are living in Babylon. We need each other as God's people because we are constantly under the pressures of Babylonness. The great pre, uh, prostitute is still riding on the beast. She is still riding on the waters of all the nations. She is still getting into bed with the rulers even in Langley, even in Willoughby. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying let's go out and, and paint everything with evil and, you know, the Antichrist is, is, is in Langley City Hall. Or That's not what I'm saying. In fact, I love living in Willoughby. I love living where I live. But, the message of Revelation, each time we open it, is what? Things are not as they seem. Do not be seduced. Do not be lulled into complacency. Let your eyes be opened. And then what? So what do we do with all that? What if we are living in Babylon? Like, what if I, what if I do let... Revelation opened my eyes. And what if I do wake up one day and say, ah, oh, there it is, I, I really am? Then what? Well, first of all, remember what we started with. Every Babylon is falling. Every Babylon is crumbling. None of it will last forever. It cannot last forever because the Lamb is returning and the Lamb is going to institute the new Jerusalem. Pastor Brad is going to start to teach on that in the coming weeks. There is an end in, in, in Revelation, and the Lamb does win. Number two, take it from Revelation 18, verse 4 and 5. John said he heard another voice calling from heaven. And what did that voice say? It said, come away from her, my people. Don't take part in her sins or you'll be punished with her. For her sins are piled as high as heaven and God remembers her evil deeds. 
So what are we supposed to do when we realize that we are living in Babylon? Come out. Come away from her. But where do we go? Where do we move? Chilliwack? Like, you think Babylon's there? Like, Babylon's everywhere, isn't it? Isn't the great prostitute hovering over all many waters? Over the nations? So where do we go? Jesus' words. We are called to live in, not of. Don't participate in the sins of the city. Live in Babylon, but not of Babylon. And that's no easy task. That's why we need each other. I need you to help me. And you need me to help you. We need each other. We need Christian community. In fact, if you remember back to Jesus' prayer in John uh, chapter 17, what we call the, the great priestly prayer, he prayed for us, his people, and two big things in that prayer. He prays for our unity because he knows we are going to need each other. And in verse 11 in John chapter 17, he says, I will remain in the world no longer. He's praying to the Father. But they, you, us, we are still in the world. Jesus says, I'm coming to you, Father. But Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Listen to his prayer. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of it. So sanctify them by the truth. Open their eyes. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. We're called to live where we are, but not be of what it is. And Revelation sharpens this. The dramatic imagery is meant to shock us, to stop us in our tracks, to wake us up from that slumber and say, hey, gang, you are living in Babylon. But remember, whatever your Babylon, whatever name it has, Rome for the first century believers, Langley for us, it's not as great as it thinks it is. In fact, it's actually crumbling and falling, and it will be replaced because Jesus the Lamb is coming as Lord of all lords and King of all kings. And remember, when he shows up, it doesn't mark the beginning of the battle, it marks the end. His rule takes place. Jesus the Lamb is coming as Lord of lords and King of kings. And he's coming with the new Jerusalem. We're going to start to unpack that. He's leading us in the ways of the new Jerusalem so that we can begin to impart those ways into the Babylons that we are called to live in. And invite the worship team to come up. We're going to have people that can pray for you in the, in the back. We're going to go into a time of worship. Friends, we need to be helping each other see. All of us have blind spots as we live where we live. And all of us have acute awarenesses of, of certain things that other people don't. 
And we need to be willing to, in community, come together and begin to say, hey, guys, that I think is Babylon. That I think is more Jesus. And we need to be able to discuss and orient ourselves around that. One of the ways that you can begin to do that is in prayer, people in the back. If there are things that you're like, I just didn't get that, or, or I'm struggling with this, or I'm wrestling with this, or my life is really wrapped up in this, and I don't know if it should be, start by heading to the back. Let's pray together.